Jonah chapter 3. Here's a question to ponder for a minute. Does God ever repent? While you're carefully considering your answer, I'll tell you why I'm asking. Our text says in verse 10 that God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon the Assyrians in Nineveh. This word relented is translated repented in many good versions of the Bible, including the King James Version. The Bible itself seems to tell you that God does repent. But when the Bible says God repents, it doesn't mean he ever does anything wrong. We have a hard time with the word because to us we're always repenting from sin. And so obviously God doesn't do that. It doesn't even mean that he changes his mind. It means he's responding in mercy to the faith of a condemned people. He must judge them for their sin, but if they turn to him, he's made a way for them to escape the judgment and be saved. From our point of view, God repents or relents, but he's really acting in a way that is consistent with his nature. There's an important passage in Jeremiah that puts this into perspective. So important. It's Jeremiah 18. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just read it to you. Just make a note of it. Uh, it's that passage where Jeremiah is talking about the potter working with clay. He talks about how the potter can do whatever he wants. And that's sometimes quoted out of context because right after that, here's what he says. He says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. And so God is telling us what he means by uh, the scripture that says he repents or he relents. He acts consistent with his nature. And what is that nature? We, do it, we talk about it all the time here. It's that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so uh, the situation in Nineveh, God says, go tell them it's all over. They're going to be destroyed. Uh, and then that doesn't happen, and it... Everybody tries to jump through hoops to figure out, well, what happened? God just acting according to his nature. And it, it's an amazing story. Now, I've taken a few moments to defend the use of the word repent because it's a key to unlocking the teaching of this chapter. And you're going to see that in these verses, God does repent in the sense that I just said. But you'll also see that there's something he doesn't repent of, and that's going to be pretty precious. God does repent in response to the faith of the people of Nineveh, God doesn't repent of his calling on the life of Jonah despite Jonah's massive fail. Jonah is the epic fail of prophets at this point. Don't you? I like that term, epic fail. You know, it, it, the Internet's full of epic fails. Kids, don't try this at home. I mean, some of the stuff that people do is insane. Now, when we last left Jonah, he'd been vomited up on a beach by the great fish that God had prepared for him. He attempted to resign his commission as a prophet. He refused to pray for the lives of the mariners on the ship in the storm. He requested they throw him in the sea to kill himself rather than repent and go to Nineveh. And later on in chapter 4, you're going to see that he remained rebellious even after the great revival in this city. 
This is the background as you read in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. God still sends Jonah to Nineveh. Despite all of Jonah's reluctance and outright rebellion, God does not change his mind. He does not repent of his calling upon Jonah's life. An important portion of Scripture puts this into perspective. I'll read a portion of it. It's Romans eleven twenty nine. It says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. We're going to mention that verse in a moment again. But for now, you see something truly amazing about God. He doesn't repent from his gifts and calling. God's gifts refer to your salvation and its many blessings. His calling refers to his eternal purposes for your life. Let's be honest. It troubles us that God would still use Jonah after his reluctance and rebellion. But it thrills us to realize that God still uses us after our reluctance and rebellion. When you're reading the scripture, you should always have the prophet Nathan in mind. Nathan was the one who came when David was in sin. Do you remember the story? Probably David had sinned with Bathsheba, and he refused to repent. And so Nathan came to him with a made-up story about somebody who had, you know, uh, harmed a little ewe lamb, and David got all incensed and wanted to kill the person. And then Nathan, with great uh, spiritual courage, said, David, you're that man. And David repented. And so a lot of times when we read things in Scripture, we say, oh, how could God use Jonah after all that? And then we need to have Nathan say to us, Gene, you're, you're the man. God still uses you and everyone else in this room and every Christian uh, and because he doesn't repent of the gifts and the callings that he has in our life. God not only uses Jonah, he gives him the exact same commission he had previously. He doesn't even dock his pay as we would do. He doesn't take him a step. And he says, well, Jonah, he goes, you were, you were a you know, prophet first class, but now you're going to have to take a, a, a pay grade reduction. I'm going to send you to some smaller towns to see how you do for a while. We might build back up to Nineveh, but for right now, uh, maybe you should go back to Nazareth. There's some people that think Jonah was from Nazareth, and maybe he should go back there and try out. But no, he doesn't do that. We would make Jonah earn his way back to the rank of prophet. Some of you have been involved in situations in churches or in the larger Christian community of, of the Internet, uh, and you know certain things have happened, and, and then people seem like they have to work their way back uh, and jump through a bunch of hoops in order to get back to a place of serving the Lord. We want people to prove themselves. We... We tell people they need to repent, but we don't define what repentance is. I was in a meeting one time. It, it's a long story. I, I don't want to bore you with the details, but I was observing some counseling of, uh, that was being done uh, for the sake of this one individual, and they kept telling him he needed to repent. And when I was finally able to ask some questions, I said, you've been telling him to repent. What, what do you mean by that? What, how would you recognize repentance in this situation? What would that mean? They said, we'll just know it when we see it. I said, well, none of us know it. Uh, we, we don't understand what you're talking about. I um, mean, it's, it's not nebulous. You either repent or you don't. But we'd want Jonah to prove himself. God immediately restored him to his office and his service. Forget about Jonah for a moment. Look into your own life. If you're a believer, you're going to fail and fall. When you do, God doesn't repent from his gifts and calling upon your life. 
He works to bring you back to a place of serving Him. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. There are. There always are. But God wants to restore you, will restore you, and He will continue to use you. When you fall or fail, put your name in Jonah's place where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jean the second time. Then in place of the word second, put in whatever number of failure you're currently working on. Now the word of the Lord came to Jean for the millionth time. You ever say that to people? Man, I've told you a million times this and this and the other thing. Uh, it's a, obviously a hyperbole, but it feels like that sometimes. And so this is how you and I are to understand and receive these verses. The word of the Lord keeps coming to us over and over and over again because of the graciousness of our God. We don't sin that grace might abound, but when we do sin, grace does abound, and we're thankful for that. And so one of the subplots here of the life of Jonah is the abounding grace of God. God using this man after his enormous failure, epic fail, and desire to absolutely... I mean, he went in the absolute opposite direction and, and, and brought danger upon unsaved Gentiles. And God says, okay, now we're all through with that. I vomited you on the beach. Now this is, I'm going to tell you again, you're going to Nineveh. And he does. So God told Jonah to arise because Jonah had fallen. You will fall. When you do, God says, arise. Uh, then he sends you on your way according to his gifts and calling upon your life that he does not repent from. Uh, a lot of times, um, you know, the, the only word you need to say to somebody who's, who's repented is to arise. Arise, get back to work. The woman caught in adultery. I love that story. Obviously, all of us do. Uh, Jesus finally said, why don't you just go and not sin anymore? He didn't tell her to say five Hail Marys or, uh, of course, Mary was still alive. I guess he could have told her to go talk to Mary. But anyway, he, he, there was nothing. He, he just said, hey, you, you, you know, you, of course you deserve to die. He never doubted that she deserved to die. The, the word of God, the, the, the law said she should be stoned to death. But he offered grace and he said, go and sin no more. And so arise. Sometimes it's on us. We think there's some great work that we need to do. Uh, you know, uh, but repentance is a state of mind. It's a state of the heart. You can't work your way back. You, you didn't work your way into the kingdom. You can't work your way back into good standing in the kingdom. You just have to agree with God, confess your sin, and turn from whatever it is that you fell into and just arise. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. The Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital, extended all the way to the Mediterranean coast where Jonah had been barfed on the beach. It even included the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean. Jonah was still 500 miles from the city when he was thrown up on the beach. It would have taken him at least a month on foot to get to Nineveh. When it says that Nineveh was a three-day journey in extent, obviously it means that it took Jonah three days to walk through Nineveh after he arrived. And so Jonah, walking through the crowds, uh, announcing God's judgment, it took him three full days to go uh, through uh, Nineveh with this message. But it took him at least a month to get there. So after a month's journey... He had a three-day ministry. Jonah prepared ten times longer than he preached. 
It should be a lesson to us. Power for ministry and service comes from preparation, secret preparation. comes from walking with God when no one sees you. And so he, he literally walked with God to Nineveh and then performed his ministry. And so it's a little, little devotional nugget. Just spend time preparing. What you do in secret is always going to be more important than what you do in public. Uh, God shaping you and molding you, giving you a message, giving, you know, opening up your heart to him, those kinds of things. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah had been told to preach the message God would tell him, no more and no less. So let's assume that he obeyed at least that part. And, and actually, I, this is a... This is a Jonah-esque kind of take on the gospel anyway uh, because he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He hated the Assyrian Empire, as many Jews did, for, because of what they'd done. Uh, and, and so he said, hey, 40 days and you guys are history. But we need to be confident in the simple, straightforward word of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. We need to let the Holy Spirit lead us when we speak for God. We're so interested in, oh, what's the word? We want, to be, we want to be coherent. Let's use that word. And so we spend a long time talking to people and explaining things when a couple of Bible verses would probably do the trick. There's not power in my words when I comment on the Bible. There's power in the words of Scripture themselves. And so a lot of times, I've told you this before, Jesus did this. Other Bible characters did this. People ask you questions or they, they you know, want to talk to you about something. You're not obligated to answer their exact question. You, you don't have to talk to them about what they want to talk about. They don't know what they want to talk about because they're, they're, they're not in touch with what's going on in their heart. But the Holy Spirit is and he can tell you what to say. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Oh, we've heard, you know, you're doing all these great works. You're a great man of God. And Jesus says, Hey, guess what? You need to be born again. Wow, where did that come from? What does that have to do with what I just said? It has everything to do with what you just said because you don't know what you just said. You need to be saved. And so don't always think, you, you know, you have to answer the question because usually the question, that, that's not what's really going on in the person's heart. That's just some smoke screen that they, you know, they want to ask you how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, you know, to stump you. When in reality, in reality, their marriage is falling apart. Somebody in their, you know, experience just got sick. Uh, something happened. Not, a couple of years ago, we have a regular a FedEx driver here that comes by. He's been coming by here for years. And one day, out of nowhere, he's dropping off a package and he just looks at me and he goes, why does God allow suffering? And I started talking to him and, and I, you know, I asked him, I said, well, let me ask you, why are you asking me that? His wife and his daughter had been killed in a car accident some years ago. And he couldn't get over that. And so I was able to share with him. He, he didn't get saved, but, you know, that's what was on his heart, was genuinely on his heart. And, and so um, just, you know, let the Holy Spirit lead you. So Jonah preaches this message. We've made an awesome personal application of Jonah's experience by showing you that God does not repent from his gifts and calling. There's a prophetic application. I've told you before, Jonah is a type of God's dealings with the Jews as a nation. 
in Romans 11:29, where I read the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, that's a section of Romans which promises the Jews that even though they've rebelled against God, he does not repent of his gifts and calling on them as a nation. God's going to fulfill his unconditional promises to Israel. He'll regather and restore them in the last days as he's doing. They will take his word to the Gentile nations in the future. Their failure as a nation does not cancel out God's promised blessings. And so that section, Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with God's past, present, and future dealings with Israel. A lot of Christians think that God is through with Israel, that the church has replaced Israel, that all of Israel's blessings now belong to us, and, and, and that, but that's not true because Paul says in the middle of all this, he says, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, and he explains that God is going to restore Israel not just to their land as a nation as he's done, but as a people, as his chosen people who turn to him and love him. Uh, and, and so Jonah's an example of that. If you're a believer, God does not repent towards you. You fail, you fall. God foresaw all of that. He says to you, arise. He says it a second time and a third time, and he keeps on saying it. What if you're not a believer? Well, close to one million people believed God and were converted in this revival. Before we see the response to Jonah's three-day campaign, let me share an interesting fact I learned about the Assyrians One of their gods, you probably know this or you've heard the name Dagon, his name is the root word, uh, from a root word meaning fish. Dagon was represented by an idol that was half human and half fish, kind of like a merman, if you get my meaning. And so he's half half man and half fish. And so you're you're an Assyrian, you're vacationing uh, at the Mediterranean coast, All of a sudden, people start looking out into the ocean. There's a disturbance. A great fish comes up and wriggles its way onto the beach, and it pukes a prophet onto the shore. A man comes out of a fish, and you have some fear of a god who is half fish and half man. You understand how freaky this is? Word spread rapidly ahead of time of Joni's, uh, Joni's, Jonah's arrival. God had been preparing the citizens of Nineveh for his arrival. And so, you know, God kind of meets people where they're at sometimes. You want to worship a, a, a guy who's a half man, half fish? Here, here's something to chew on. Here's my prophet coming out of a fish, uh, showing that God has control of all of these things. And so, uh, you know, this is... This is kind of, I don't know how news traveled in those days, whether it was on horseback or by runners or whatever, but this is big news. A Hebrew prophet has been puked on the beach by a great fish. This doesn't happen every day in, uh, along the Mediterranean. And so this is spreading. It's similar in a different way, but it, it reminds me of when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the two spies found out that everyone knew all about the Israelites and what their God had done and could do, and they were terrified. And so there's a little bit of preparation going on, and you need to believe that even though you don't see it, God is always working to prepare the hearts of your non-believing loved ones and friends and acquaintances. Uh, Just because you can't see what's going on in their heart, they don't even know what's going on in their heart, but God is working to prepare them. And so let him have his preparation. So the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The people believed God. They didn't believe in God. They believed God. There's a big difference. Most people believe in God. In every poll in America, the vast majority of people claim a belief in God. You ever read some of those polls? 90% of Americans believe in God. Or some, even if it's 70%, then you, go, you drive to church on Sunday morning. Is there any sense that 50 or even percent of the people in Hanford are going to church? Very small percentage of people actually attend church when you think about it. There's a couple of large churches in town, and Lemoore, and even you've add them all together, it's a very tiny percentage of people. Because a lot of people believe in God, but they don't believe God. You need to believe God as he's revealed in Scripture, then you're saved. Sackcloth and ashes are an outward sign of an inward sentiment. You, you're trying to show people that, you know, there's something going on in your heart, and so you tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. And these, this is how these people were picturing repentance, turning to God from idols. King's action was a symbol of what was happening. By taking off his robe... He was rejecting self-rule and asking God to be his king. I mean, he stepped down from the throne. He says, okay, I'm done being king. I'm going to take my robe off. I'm going to wear sackcloth and ashes. We need a different king. We need God to be king because we're headed for destruction and we deserve it. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat. Or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? I, I, I like this king. He's covering all his bases. He figures, hey, we don't know. We've heard rumors. We don't know that much about the God of Israel, so let's have the animals fast too. Maybe it's a PETA thing, you know. I mean, uh, uh, who knows, uh, you know. Let's put sackcloth on the animals too. Everything that's alive is sackcloth, ashed, and we're fasting. Don't feed anybody. We're going to take this thing really seriously. And Jonah doesn't say, oh, don't worry about the animal. He just lets it, he just lets it play out. What hope was there in Jonah's message that God might turn and relent. I mean, his message was, yet 40 days and you'll be destroyed. So where was the hope? There are at least two things that inspired hope. First of all, God's message, yet 40 days. If God wanted to destroy Nineveh, why warn them? Why wait? This is a warning that gave hope that God was waiting to see what they might do. 40 days from now, I'm going to destroy you. Uh, that's more than a month. That's a long time. What could happen in 40 days, you know? And so there's, there's some hope there. The experience of Jonah gave them hope. Despite Jonah's reluctance and rebellion, God delivered him from the belly of the great fish. God must be a compassionate, merciful, second-chance-giving God. And so here was the prophet who himself had been given a second chance after disobeying God. And there's some sense, don't your friends always think that it's worse when you do something wrong than when they do something wrong? Because, after all, you're the Christian. And so here's Jonah did some pretty wrong things, 
And yet God still used him to preach a message of warning, so maybe there's hope. God has a way of revealing himself to non-believers. He spoke to them right where they were at. They worshipped a fish man, so he sent them a man from a fish and showed them he was the God of both men and fish. He warned them, then waited, which could only indicate he was a compassionate God, not really willing that any should perish. The Ninevites, or the Assyrians, they're the kind of people that you didn't warn. They were vicious. Even the king says, let's not do any more violence. Violence was a way of life. Uh, I gave you an example when we started this study uh, a couple of weeks ago of how violent even the kings were and how vicious and brutal they were. And so these aren't the kind of people that you warn. These are the kind of people you destroy, and yet God warned them. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God does uh, repent in response to faith. He acts consistently with his character. Nineveh is condemned, but the people had 40 days to respond. All men are born condemned. If you do not yet believe God, you're condemned. Span of your life is your personal 40 days in which God warns you and waits for you to respond. You may have years left or months or days or mere hours. Everyone born into the world is already condemned, but God has sent Jesus to take that condemnation upon himself and offer you eternal life. God does repent in response to faith. It's just up to us to believe God, not to believe in God, but to believe God. Amen?